O God, you are the one whom we worship and serve, the one who calls us, who calls out to us, who runs after us, who wants us to know you because only in knowing you and following you can we have the blessing that you intended from the beginning of all creation. You are the one who is our strong Lord and Savior. You are the one who is our nurturing and caring companion. You are the one who has lived and spoken in Jesus. You are the one who continues to live and speak in the life of the community that is Jesus' body. We are part of that body. We thank you for these blessings. We remember them. We claim them. We seek to live into them so that we can be nurtured and strengthened in our faith and faithfulness today. Come and be with us then for the sake of your love in Jesus. Amen. Okay, today we have a whole lot of words to deal with. There's a lot of text, and I'm not going to read all of it for us. We will need to read some of it. But in this text, if you've read ahead, we come to a major junction in, I was going to say juncture or junction point, and I, I conflated those two things. Junction, uh, that's a theological term now. <laughs> we come to a major turning point in the story of Abraham and Abraham's family. We come to the death of Abraham and of Sarah, and then the beginning, in a sense, of Isaac's life. So that's what we're going to be reading about. There are some absolutely fascinating themes to look at here. So let's start in with chapter 23, uh, verses 1 through 20, uh, the death of Sarah. Sarah lived 127 years. This was the length of Sarah's life. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Abraham rose up from beside his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a stranger and an alien residing among you. Give me property among you for a burying place so that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my lord. You are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our burial places. None of us will withhold from you any burial ground for burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. He said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, son of Zohar, so that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as a possession for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites of all who went in at the gate of his city. No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the presence of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Okay, the negotiation continues between Abraham and Ephron, and eventually Abraham prevails and buys the land from Ephron to have a place to bury Sarah. So this seems like a fairly simple situation and simple conversation, but there's a whole lot going on here. And so the first thing I want to ask you in order maybe to get in touch with 
the human situation that exists here is this. How many of you have a place already arranged for where your remains will find their final resting place? Okay, that means the rest of you don't. <laughs> okay, how many of you, how many of you will find your final resting place here in Southern California? Okay. How many of you will go back home to Indiana or Wisconsin <laughs> or somewhere else? Okay. How many of you have been to visit the burial grounds of your forebears? Very good. Very good. Think about all of that because remember the situation of Abraham and Sarah. Remember the beginning of the story? Abraham is living in Ur of the Chaldees. Abraham is way over in modern-day Iraq, hundreds and hundreds of miles away. And what's the story of Abraham? God said, leave your home, wander around, I'm going to give you a homeland. And that's the story that we've followed of Abraham, going to and fro, settling for a while, moving, having problems, having successes, settling for a while, moving, to and fro over the land. And Sarah dies, and what is the reality of Abraham's life? He does not yet have a homeland. He's too far away from homeland. And by the way, God has said, leave your homeland. You're going to be in a new homeland. Abraham is in a, is in a state of flux, a state of suspension, if you will. He's in between. He is a foreigner and a stranger in the land of the Hittites. Now, eventually, that land will belong to Abraham's family, but it doesn't yet. How many of you have struggled? You don't have to raise your hand on this. This is a more personal question, but how many of you have struggled and maybe still have not yet landed on deciding where it is that your remains are supposed to be? How, I, I can tell you the things that go on in families. Families say, well, we used to live in X place, but nobody's there anymore. And we don't have any family here. The family's scattered. Where are we, where are we going to be? Or we, we want to be here, but nobody's there anymore. Or my husband or my wife wanted to be buried here, and I wanted to be buried there. And they're 2,000 miles apart from each other. There are all kinds of things that get in the way of our decision about that. Well, Abraham has to figure out where is he going to put Sarah. So that question of where you are going to be is not just a question of where your remains will be. It is really a question of where is your home? Where is your home? Heaven. That's a great answer but it doesn't answer the question of where we're going to put this physical substance that is you. <laughs> that won't be your home. That's exactly right. Now, remember as well that in the early, early days that the people of God had only a vague concept of this idea of heaven, of eternal life. For them, the idea was that their life continued in their children, in their posterity. 
And we have a much more fully developed idea of this business of going to be with God forever in heaven because of Jesus Christ, right? But back before then, when people said, God made us, we live here, how are we going to keep on living? The idea that, your body, that you would be resurrected and live forever was still a very, very tiny little piece of people's understanding. And so it was even more important to Abraham and his family that they have a place that would serve as the center focus, if you will, of who they were and where they were, so that then the family could continue with its identity, with its identity. How many of you identify as having been born somewhere? Okay, if you can't get in touch with that, we're, we have a problem. <laughs> right, people ask you your story, say, tell me your story. I was born on a cold and rainy night in Socorro, New Mexico, whatever, whatever that is, right? The place where we were born and then the place where we die become very, very important to our identity. And I want us not to over-spiritualize this. I want us to understand how important physical reality is, right? I mean, I, I kind of happen to like living. I kind of happen to like the world. For all of its troubles, I like living in the world. Do you? If you didn't, you would have stopped eating a long time ago, <laughs> right? And so this business of the physical place where we are is a huge question for Abraham. And he doesn't have a place. So he goes to the Hittites. It's the land of the Hittites and the Canaanites and the Parasites and the Jebusites. Eventually, it will become what we would call the Holy Land, the land of the Israelites. But it wouldn't always stay that way. We know that. And truth be told, nobody has a permanent homeland here in this world. It's fascinating to look back at the history of civilizations. And, uh, you know, who knows? We could be right now uh, on, some, on a place that used to be somebody's home. And we could be right now very close to a place that is a burial ground of ancient peoples, right? This was their home. Now it's a completely different place. So Abraham goes to the Hittites and says, please sell me a piece of land. The Hittites don't have to do that. It's their land. Abraham is a foreigner among them. But what do the Hittites say? They say, Abraham, you're a great prince among us. Take what you want as a burial ground for your people, right? God has blessed Abraham and all the comings and goings and problems that we've talked about. Abraham has become a prosperous person and his family is a prosperous, powerful family of substance, we would say. He's getting along with the Hittites. They're, they're happy to have him there. And so they want to give him some land, but Abraham insists on buying some land. Why would you insist on buying something? What's that? Then you don't owe anybody. And then it's yours. Right? Then it's yours. And so Abraham and Ephron go back and forth, and finally they settle on a price, and Sarah is buried. So we have here, in a sense, the establishment of the Holy Land by the purchase, the first purchase of a tiny little piece of property. 
a tiny little piece of property. I once visited with, um, I won't tell you all the details of it, but visited with the attorney uh, for the Walt Disney Corporation when Disney was, Disneyland was built and then Disney World was built. And in order to build Disney World, uh, the Disney company sent out uh, legions of lawyers into the Orlando area to buy land all over the place. But they had to do it secretly because if the people in Orlando learned that Disney was trying to buy their land, of course, the price would go sky high. So all these lawyers went out and bought this land quietly, and then they suddenly created Disney World. They created the beachhead, if you will. That's kind of what Abraham has done here. And then Sarah dies. Now, death is a problem. Not, not just death in the sense of the end of our life, but here is the end of the first chapter in the story. Right? The story is about Abraham and Sarah. Sarah's been a pretty important person in the story. Would you agree? No Sarah, no Isaac. And now Sarah dies. The death of an individual creates a crisis. It creates a crisis in a family. Would you agree with that? Someone is gone now. And the more, the more powerful, the more impactful that person's life has been, the more their death means. Because you don't know what's going to happen after that. All of life gets rearranged when someone dies. And if that someone has had a bigger footprint, it's a bigger rearrangement. So Abraham makes a place for Sarah to be buried. This landless sojourner, Abraham, now has a place where family is. And that's important to us psychologically. Yeah, I know a lot, you know, we would say, yes, of course, we go to heaven. What happens with this body? Ultimately, it, it, it's earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. But I will guarantee you that for the vast majority of human beings, and maybe all human beings who will admit it, the place where you put the remains of someone you have loved becomes sacred ground. It is holy ground, because that is the final place where you say, this person lived. If there is no place, if there is no place, oftentimes people, are, people die and their bodies are not recovered. Their bodies disappear. It becomes a, a psychological problem for us because we don't have a place. And we go to great lengths to find human remains. Have you noticed that? Every few weeks, there's an article about some remains that were found somewhere from World War II, for heaven's sakes. And they've been identified and they've been returned to the family. So this idea of the homeland, the home place, the place where we belong, is important not just for Abraham and Sarah. It's important for the identity and the understanding of the entire nation of Israel and for the whole of Scripture, right? Where is your ultimate place where you will be? We already have the answer. It is in the heart of God, right? That is one of our fundamental questions. Where is our ultimate place where we will be? In the heart of God. And Abraham makes arrangements for that. Abraham makes a place for Sarah that will in some sense become a, a stake in the ground, a beachhead where the family will continue to operate around and where the family eventually will end up. 
What kind of thoughts are in your head right now? What kind of questions about this simple story that has such uh, historic importance? Yes, Barbara. When I think of that, I can really relate. But in today's modern world, something that's going through my mind is that it's very difficult where my parents or other relatives are buried to visit them as often as I would like. And mm -hmm. There's a certain amount of guilt in that associated with that. So I have a thought that if I'm cremated and I put ashes in different containers, small, and give them to each of my children, and they can choose to have a burial place for it in their yards or such, or have it on somewhere else. But they have that choice, and they don't have to make a long trip to my grave. Uh, we did that with our son's ashes, and we put it where we put a special rose with a plaque, and every time that rose bush blooms, we think of him relating to us. So mm -hmm. that's my modern thought at this time yeah. of something that I might and probably will do. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. That is a, that is a creative and thoughtful way to, to answer that question of where is my place, where will I be, where will I continue to be remembered by family, right? Uh, the burial place, wherever it is, or whatever memorial place this is, is, is hugely important to most people in order to remember you, right? And eventually, nobody's going to remember you. Nobody's going to remember me. There's only a handful of people in history that we still remember, right? For the most part, most of us will be erased. We will, we will fade away from human memory, but for as long as we can, especially for those who know us, we want to be remembered. Thank you for sharing that. Someone else, what thought is That's going on? Say that again? That's why we do genealogy. Yeah, that's why we do genealogy. Exactly. Exactly. At least to have names and places where those names were and maybe some information about those people. Yeah, yeah, that's important. Why is it important to remember all that? Because in remembering your history, and remembering from whom you come, from whence you cometh, and what your history is, you know something about who you are. And you know some things that you want to continue, that you want to maintain, that you want to celebrate, that you want to enlarge, that you want to pass on. And you probably also remember some things that you want to just leave back there in the past, right? Yeah, anybody here have a horse thief as a relative? <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I just want to share a quick story. Um, this is a very important topic in my life because when I was very little, the first thing my dad did was to take us, his wife, mom, and the little ones to see our grave because he would purchase that as like have it ready for mm. any people in the family. And I was little and I went to see it and I, I chose the one I wanted, a beautiful wall. And it was a beautiful place, green. And um, I was excited to know since very little that I had a place. And 
20 years after, when my dad decided to divorce my mother, he took another family to see that place. <laughs> so I was left without it. And mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, that's where I was supposed to die. So now I don't know what I'm supposed to die. Uh -huh. So it is important that it's very relative. It's like, okay, that's no longer my place. So um, I should not do that with my kids at mm -hmm. all because it's kind of like you lose your, your, your place, your home. And, um, but it's a very important topic. It, it really, it, really um, it was something impressive for me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And now that I don't have it, I'm like, okay, now, who cares? I mean, only God knows. And I'll see where I land. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah, know. yeah. Where is your place? Where is your home? Who is your family? Yeah. Uh, thank you for sharing that story. That, that highlights kind of both ends of that spectrum, doesn't it? the beauty of solid family of history of place, and then it is changed radically, right? That's a huge question for all of Scripture. Where is your place? Where do you belong? And ultimately, of course, in Jesus, we say we belong in the heart of God. Do you remember what Jesus said to the disciples the, the day or so before he died? We read this Scripture at nearly every funeral. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And when I go, I will come again and will take you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. The ultimate assurance that the place we have here on earth is problematic. <laughs> but the place we have in God's heart is not, right? All of those dynamics are going on in this story about a place to bury Sarah. Now, we could talk for a few more hours on this topic, but let's continue on. Let's continue on. Let's go to, let's see, what is the name of the next chapter 24? Now, Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. Abraham said to his servant, to the oldest of his house, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I live, but will go to my country and to my kindred and get a wife for my son Isaac." The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my birth, and who spoke to me and swore to me, To your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all kinds of choice gifts from his master. And he set out and went to Aram Naharim, to the city of Nahor. He made the camels kneel down beside the city by the well of the water. It was toward evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. 
I am standing here by the spring of water, and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. Let the girl to whom I shall say, Please offer your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, Drink, and I will water your camels, let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, there was Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, coming out with her water jar on her shoulder. The girl was very fair to look upon, a virgin whom no man had known. She went down to the spring, filled her jar, and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please let me sip a little water from your jar. Drink, my lord, she said, and quickly lowered her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw, and she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether or not the Lord had made his journey successful. Okay, I'm going to stop there because there's a lot more going on in the story, but you know the story, right? Abraham says to his servant, Abraham's old now. Somebody else has to go take care of this business for him. Go find a wife for my son from among my people, but don't take him back there. The homeland that Abraham is claiming by faith and that has begun to become the homeland with the burial of Sarah and a plot of land that belongs to Abraham, that's going to be Isaac's homeland as well. So Abraham is kind of going between two poles here. Isaac needs to live here, but he needs a wife from the family. Why is that important? Because that's the promise to Abraham and his posterity is where this nation will come from, right? How many of you have heard stories of people going back to the homeland to get a wife, right? That used to happen quite a lot, maybe not as much as it does now. All of us sort of go back to the homeland, right? We raise our kids and we say to our kids, you know, you better not marry a Democrat or you better not marry a Republican or you better not marry a Catholic or you better not marry a Presbyterian or you better not marry a fill-in-the-blank or taking the positive track, you better marry a fill-in-the-blank. There's a lot of that going on here, right? Why? Because of the promise that Abraham's family will become a great nation. And so Abraham continually refers to that promise and continually refers to the God who made the promise, right? Abraham says to his servant, God promised me this was going to happen. And so now by God's leading, by God's steadfast love, this is going to happen. And so the servant sets out kind of on this, you know, this wife quest, I guess you would call it. This would be a great reality show, don't you think? Uh, <laughs> a wife quest. Um, and he creates this, this little test for God, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the camels to get some water, and the girl who offers me water and offers water for my camels, that's going to be the girl. How many of you have ever kind of created a little test for God when you're needing to make a decision? Right? You know, okay, God, we will move to X, Y, or Z. I will take job A, B, or C. I will do whatever it is if certain conditions apply. Okay? Many of you have heard the story 
of about now 26, 27 years ago when I was feeling the call of God to leave my current call, my current ministry, and, and find another place to be for the next season of ministry. And I was absolutely terrified of sharing that feeling that I had with Helen. And Helen terrifies me in lots of ways, but that was particularly <laughs> terrifying. Um, and, and finally, I got up the courage to say, honey, I, I think I'm being called away from this place, but I don't know to where I am being called. And God had been speaking into Helen's heart in exactly the same way, saying, yes, I think our season of ministry is coming to a conclusion here, and it's time to go. And she literally said this word, these words. Some of you know these words. You've heard this story, right? She said, I am ready to go anywhere with you except to California. <laughs> This is God's truth. This is not preacher hyperbole here. Okay, I never exaggerate. Uh, except to California. And so that was kind of, kind of her, and my, I never expected to move to California. We looked all over the country. We had opportunities all over the country and never really thought about California. I'd only been to California two times before I came here to, to visit with this congregation. Um, and so we kind of set out our parameters. God will go anywhere, just not California. And you know the rest of the story. You should never limit God. <laughs> Don't try to cut a deal with God, right? But we do that. We do that. And that's what this servant does. He sort of cuts a deal with God. This is going to be the sign, right? And the sign is answered. And so as the rest of the story plays out, I'll just fill it in here rather than reading the story, right? Uh, the servant says, oh, Rebecca. God has a plan for your life, and I'm going to tell you what it is. And he goes to Rebecca's parents and says, this is the plan. And Rebecca's parents say, oh, if the Lord said this, if the Lord did this, then we must obey, we must answer. If you go back through and read this chapter, all throughout the chapter, it is the Lord is going to provide, the Lord is going to lead, we're going to entrust this to the Lord. The Lord, by his steadfast love, is going to care for us in this and then Rebecca, dutifully answering the call of God, spoken through this servant, goes back to be married to Isaac. Here again, there's another crisis that is resolved. The crisis of who Isaac is going to marry. How many of you have been through that crisis? Who will I marry? Of course. How many of you have been through that crisis with your children? Who are they going to marry? And then they make a choice, and it becomes a bigger crisis. No, that's... <laughs> right? All through, these are the normal things of life, but every normal thing of life is, in a sense, its own crisis. Right? And God resolves that crisis. So let me ask you this question. Think about this a little bit. Let's talk about this a little bit. How has God led you through the crises of life? The normal crises you got to bury someone. you got to marry someone. you got to decide where to live. you got to decide what your work is going to be. How, how does God work with you in that? What does God do with you in that? What's stirring around in your heads? You shared a story, and some people already know this story, but um, I did a request for God, and I gave him three parameters. Mm -hmm. 
And I was single for a long time. And I, had a, I worked at La Jolla Press, and there was a gal there who got married late in life. And she said, Susan, you have to be specific. When you pray, you have to be specific. She uh, retired, went to Arizona. Every time she'd come back to La Jolla, I'd see her at church, and she'd say, Susan, have you met anyone special? And I'd say, no. And she said, have you been spray praying specifically? Mm -hmm. Year and a half this went on. Finally, I go home after seeing her at church, and I lie down on my sofa, and I say, OK, God. Everything sounded pretty trite. What on earth do you ask for? So my first thing was, I wanted a Christian, mm -hmm. because I had had a marriage with a non-Christian, so that was top priority. In my mind, the Marlboro man was close to God, close <laughs> to nature, good at his word. I mean, he was the personification of, so okay, God, but, but with my luck, I'll get this cowboy. How am I going to take him to Europe to see my family there when he eats beans out of a can? Mm -hmm. So I said, okay, God, I need a Christian cowboy with a ranch and a beach house. A ranch and, and this, a beach house. this had nothing to do with money, but it was what was going on in my life and what I was doing. Two days later, Tuesday, my neighbor invites me over for dinner. And I walk in, and there's a man sitting there, and, you know, we just say hello. And at dinner, one of the children says, Tim, how's the ranch? <laughs> and I whipped my head around. And I said, you have a ranch? He says, well, actually, the ranch has me. So a few days later, I talked to my neighbor. He says, oh, yeah, Tim's lived in Rancho Santa Fe for 30 or 40 years, but he also has a ranch in South Dakota. Uh -huh. So when Tim got back into town about five months later, he asked me out. I mean, how could I say no? Right. I mean, a Christian cowboy with a ranch and a beach house in two days. There we are. Five weeks later, he asked me to marry him. Wow. Wow. Cool. Thank you for sharing that. That was 22, tw almost 23 years ago. Wow. Cool. So when you went for dinner at your friend's house, did you eat beans out of a can? <laughs> Beautiful. Beautiful. Someone else want to share about this, this business of... God leading you through a decision. Yes, back here. Well, I came from a family where there's all girls. I had three other sisters, and I always wanted a brother, but it didn't happen. And two years ago, when I joined Ancestry, I found out that I had a half-brother. And it, it was never mentioned ever, and then I finally confronted my mother about it because we could not figure out this connection. And um, she finally told us that, yeah, she had um, a son on the board. Mm -hmm. She got married. She was only 18, and our parents made, made her give him up for adoption. But I'm like, I have to meet him. You know, I just felt like he's part of the family. Mm -hmm. And I connected with his, his son, and we decided to meet up at the dad's house. Yeah, well, in that area, I never actually went to his house. <laughs> and um, and we lived in Salt Lake City. And I met him and his son and his son's wife and a daughter. And I was just so open because I'm like, oh my 
that. And of course he was hurt. My mom gave him up, but I was like, my mom was also adopted. So she knows how that felt because she was like, I was given up and like he was given up. So it was just, but it was like, you know, this is life. It just happens sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I just felt like it was, and he was a little standoffish, but I kept after him. I kept calling him and calling him to talk to him. And he just expects my calls all the time. Like, oh my God, this is just so wonderful that we've added to our family. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, beautiful story. I, I mean, how many times are we hearing that kind of story now? Yeah, beautiful story. God led you to, to your brother. Yeah. Now, had you been more specific, uh, it might have, but no. <laughs> sorry. Yes, Stephanie. Um, when my children were five and eight, and I had been a nurse and I had been a childbirth educator. And I had said to my husband at one point, I'd like to be a midwife someday. And he wasn't happy in his job. And he said, well, why don't you apply and see if you can get into this program? And I, he said, I said, now? And he said, yeah, now. So I applied um, at Frontier Nursing Service and um, went down for an interview and um, got accepted and didn't think I would. And um, I just kept saying, if this is supposed to happen, God, <laughs> let all these details work out. So we, my husband had to find a job we had to, in Kentucky, and we had to find a place to live with two kids. And we went down there. We found a job. We found an apartment. We were living in Illinois at the time. We rented out our house in Illinois, and we moved to Kentucky for 18 months. And um, it, you know, it all fell into place. And so I always felt like supposed to do that. Mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. If, and I just kept saying, if, if they're not supposed to do this and don't let it work out, then, then it did it. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, cool, cool. God can make things happen if you're paying attention to that, right? Let's keep on going. So we finish chapter 25. Abraham took another wife. Abraham had several wives, lots of kids, but it is the one child from the first wife. So then uh, verse 5, Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts while he was still living, and he sent them away from his son Isaac, eastward to the east country. This is the length of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. His sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, son of Zohar the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with his wife Sarah. After the death of Abraham, God blessed his son Isaac, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahiroi. Okay, Abraham dies. Another crisis. This is the first generation now going away. This is the first act, if you will, in what we call the story of salvation. That is the story of the scripture. God comes to Abraham and says, I have a plan for your life. I'm going to bless the whole world through you and through your posterity. And now God has fulfilled his promise for the first chapter of the plan. Abraham and Sarah have a son. Now Abraham and Sarah are passing away from the scene. Abraham still is taking care of all of his family, but this one particular child 
has a particular role to play. Not that God loves him more. God loves all the others as well. They're taken care of, but God has a special plan for his life. Notice that phrase, Abraham was gathered to his people. Uh, I'm, I'm aware that today uh, Nina Pope is not with us. Uh, she's usually sitting right over there. Nina's husband, Hughes, died last week quite suddenly. Um, and when I went to see the Pope family on uh, Saturday, uh, that was uh, some of the first stuff that Nina wanted to talk about. She said, I like to think that Hughes has been gathered to his people. Here again, that, that importance of your people and whoever your people are. The story we just heard about finding a half-brother, right? Who are your people? There are more people in your life than you may realize, right? And with the twists and turns and comings and goings of life, it gets very complicated sometimes, but still that's your people. Abraham goes to his people. There is, I looked up, um, there is a place south of Jerusalem, uh, looks like 60 or 70 miles, uh, that is the traditional burying place of, of the forebears, of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, of all of them, where you can still go to see the people who started the story, right? The, the old family cemetery, if you will. So notice what Abraham does. He has found a wife for Isaac, and then when Abraham dies, did you notice that phrase, verse 9? His sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him. Isaac and Ishmael. What do you think was going on there? Hadn't Abraham sent Ishmael away? Right? What are the possibilities? Maybe Isaac and Ishmael never get along, but it's time to bury dad, so the family comes together. Maybe that's what was going on. Maybe Isaac and Ishmael did get along with each other. They were half-siblings, right? But Ishmael comes. So there's all kinds of possibilities for how that relationship was, how it existed, but Ishmael is still part of the story of Abraham. Not the main storyline, most of us live our lives not the main storyline <laughs> of the biggest story. We are the main storyline for our own lives, right? And Abraham is gathered to his family, and then he passes from the scene. What happens when, when someone dies? What goes on with a family, with a community, with people? There we go. You get together with cousins you haven't seen in 20 years, and you reestablish the identity of the family, don't you? Yeah, you reestablish that identity. What else goes on? Yes. I called a friend yesterday to wish him happy birthday. He was 90 years old, and he told me, He's a widower. Uh, his wife died, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago. He lives on Mount Helix, hmm. on a kind of a dead-end street that goes up the mountain, about 10 houses that you really can't see. He said on his birthday, everybody on the street had big signs that said, Happy Birthday, Gary. And someone had put a huge sign on his deck. Now, to me, that is love and compassion. I mean, a whole street, 10 houses. Yeah. 
Yeah. To have done that for someone. Before he dies. Before he yeah. dies. Yeah, yeah, I like that. That's what I mean. That, I, I like mean, that. I started to have tears yeah. because yeah. how many have ever experienced an outreach like that before? Yeah, cool, cool. Someone else, what happens when we die? What I've experienced is that we share memories mm -hmm. of that person with each other, um, and they're usually good memories, we bring those forward, mm -hmm. and it brings that person back to life in our minds. Mm -hmm. You share memories, exactly. And you, in sharing the memories, you retell the stories of the family that locate you in space, in time, in reality, among the whole human family, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. Here. Hi. Um, one thing that I've noticed at funerals, people will ask, well, where do you think they are? Did they go to heaven or what do you believe? And mm -hmm. it brings out a lot of um, questions about our belief and our doubts and, and hopes that and think about the promises and mm -hmm. hope that they all go to, go to heaven. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, when, when someone dies, it, it gives you a great opportunity to, to reacquaint yourself with the biggest questions the deepest mysteries and the most profound truths of who we are and what we are and who God is and what goes on with all of that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Most people don't think about dying most of the time. Most people don't deal with death most of the time. And that's the way it should be. You shouldn't go around just saying, oh, I wonder what time I'm going to die, right? Um, because you have to go on with the business of your life. But every once in a while, life is punctuated by these significant things that happen that ground you again in what reality is, the reality of our faith. Yeah, very good point. What else happens? Yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I know how many times have we heard, you know, the last person of the generation dies, and then the next generation all of a sudden wakes up and says, I guess we're in charge now, or I guess we're responsible, or usually we're next, <laughs> right? <laughs> Right? But you're exactly right. All the family relationships are rearranged, are changed, and things must then be handed over to the next generation. That's part of what we see happening here with Abraham and Isaac. Isaac and Ishmael come to bury their father. It's not just a matter of dealing with the mortal remains of Abraham. It's a matter of, of signifying the end of this generation, this situation, and the beginning of something new, right? You know, maybe Isaac and Ishmael got together because they wanted to be there for the reading of the will and see who got everything. I, I don't know. There's all kinds of things that could have gone on. We know the way that that's going to proceed. Okay, next week we're going to talk then about what goes on with Isaac and the story of Isaac will begin. But it's, I think it's, to me, it's really important that we note, if ever so briefly, uh, the importance and the role of Abraham and Sarah, of Abraham and Sarah to us. Thank you, Abraham and Sarah. Thank you for your story. Thank you for your faith and for your faithfulness. I look forward to visiting with them someday, a long time from now. Please, God, hear me carefully, <laughs> right? Let's pray. Thank you, God, for being with us. Thank you for Abraham and Sarah. Thank you for your story that played out in their lives. Thank you for their faithfulness. Thank you for the things that we learn about ourselves and especially about you as we think about their lives. May we be so faithful and so eager to learn and to follow you. 
For Jesus we pray. Amen. God bless you. See you next week, the Lord willing.